to the Skeptic Wire. So I guess we can start at any time. Hello! Hello! We woke up the dog. We <laughs> woke up the dog. This is September 24th, and what episode of The Skeptic Wire are we on tonight, Greg? 171. 171 episodes, almost live to you every week. Sure. Well, it's live for us. <laughs> you know. Gotcha. So it's almost live for them. Sure. Let's go with that one. Let's go with that one. <laughs> I am your host, Donna Swafford, and tonight with me is Greg Perrine. Hi. Unfortunately, Gary cannot be with us tonight because he's actually working, and he's out of state. He's like in the bowels of Louisiana or something like that. Something like that. All I know is I have to check on his dogs. (laughs) So we wish Gary a happy and healthy time in Louisiana, and don't get eaten by a crocodile while you're doing whatever it is that you do. Um, Because I'm still really not sure what exactly he does. (laughs) I'm not even sure he knows what he does. So, how has your week been, Greg? Um, Okay. Um, The the listeners may have realized that the episode was posted really, really late this week, sometimes Saturday afternoon, mainly because um, something at work where we, we were moving a program from our little development environment into our production environment, something got stuck. So all Thursday night, I was up until about 2 a.m. with people in on the East Coast trying to figure out why it wasn't working and all that. So, so I put it, in a double shift and worked Friday. So I spent most of Friday evening just sleeping. and. Um, so, so somehow this computer program got stuck. It's kind of a, a yes. odd, odd way to think of it. Uh, long story short, it, it basically someone was started its movement into the new system and then kind of left and either them signing off or stopping what they were doing froze and locked the objects that were being moved and it just hung there for hours and hours and hours and hours again. So huh. that was uh, it was problematic of someone wasn't quite doing their job right and then left. Oh, not good. Yeah, not good. After the weekend, everything's hunky-dory and all that. So, Well, that's good to hear. Plus, on the weekend, I got to do a fun thing and see a certain good friend get to speak at um, a local organization for atheists, skeptics, and secularists and uh, give a presentation. So that was pretty neat. Um, yeah. Do you know who that was, Donna? Let me think. I, I got to think about this. So... It wasn't Gary. No, no. Um, it, what, it, it, it wasn't Mr. Herkimer or Bubble Fubbits. It wasn't I. I'm not familiar I, with that person. Um, I, I, I don't know who. Who could that possibly be? It was you, Donna. <laughs> yes. The, re- the, the listeners have already looked at the description of the episode, so you know it's all about you this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and we'll be actually talking about my talk it's about women in front of and behind the camera uh so this will be a kind of different twist on our normal usual right modus operandi not so much a current event thing but a societal issue 
and an industry issue in which in the industry you work in that um, is is a bigger thing to talk about. Right. And hopefully this will be out before the end of the weekend. If you've got a chance and you're in San Antonio, please stop by the Alamo City Comic Con. I will be <laughs> hanging out with Camden Toy and Robert England. And if our listeners remember, there is a cool video on our Facebook of Robert England recommending the Skeptic Wire. So come by, say hi, tell him <laughs> tell him you you heard about this from Donna and all of that jazz. So yeah. So and, and and after you're done with that, tell your friends about the Skeptic Wire. Leave reviews on iTunes or something. Cause, on the iTunes. Yes, because we don't do any marketing whatsoever about this. So if you think other people might enjoy it, tell your friend. And the more people listen to us, the the the, the easier it will be to disseminate the information and, and maybe see us at conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's get into the, the meat of our discussion about modern day film female filmmaking i i am a filmmaker as as everybody knows i have some award-winning films i've also worked on some very big budget films in the uh, vfx department movies with really big names in them in fact (laughs) but as a female nine times out of ten i am most likely either the only person the only person with a vagina in either the post or the pre-production and during production, there's actually not a lot of females even in front of the camera. And this is something that I really kind of feel needs to be addressed on not just the the atheist skeptic level, but kind of across the board. It's kind of this microcosm of, of what some of us actually deal with every day. Right now, I mean, the issue with women in film and and gender balance and all that is a more of a broad issue and we look at the statistics and f- figure out kind of what what is going on and maybe what can we do to fix it um and maybe later in the discussion we can talk where maybe the skeptical movement itself can maybe help or work on that or the secular movement might be able to get involved but that's yeah. kind of discussion later right let's talk about most of what we're going to be talking about this week is essentially replaying donna's presentation from the weekend and seems that uh, the the first part of your presentation is about what is the problem let you know showing the magnitude of what's going on right well one of the one of the things that is that you frequently see in films is the fact that female directors okay so the director is kind of the the captain of the ship in this regards they they're the ones telling the story they are the ones who are making choices about actors and actresses and cinematography choices and, and all of this. So they, they really are the, the captain of the ship. Unfortunately, women directors are actually, the numbers are going down. 2007, there was only, there was 9% of the films made had female directors. 2010, it dropped to 7%. And in 2011, it dropped to 5%. And in 85 years of the Oscars, so this is going back to 1929 in Wings. Four women have ever been nominated for Best Director. One has won. And that was Catherine Bigelow for the movie The Hurt Locker. Right. Um, which she almost didn't get to make. She had to mortgage practically everything that she had for this script because her previous film, K-19, The Widowmaker, did so horribly in theaters 
and lost so much money that the studio was not willing to bank on her personally. She had to put up a lot of personal assets and a lot of money and raise a lot of money to get to make this film, which in turn won her this award. So, so devil's advocate, like there are plenty of male directors who, if they make a stinker, no one wants to touch them yeah. for a while. It may just be because of the numbers problem and the bias problem, even worse for a female director right. if they have a bomb. Right, exactly. Because there are there are more women who are willing to step up into that position. And then you also have people like Lexi Alexander. Lexi Alexander is actually the first female R-rated comic book movie director. She did the movie Punisher Warzone. Ah, uh, yes. I, I believe that was covered on How Did This Get Made yes. one time. And I, I think they had a pretty good interview with her about but she has what actually, she had to go through. Right. Yeah. And what was funny was that she is actually an Academy Award winning director. She won for a short, which is a very different genre. It's a very different style sort of movie. So when I say best directors, I am talking about best features. I, I, I feel the need to straighten that out. So you have Lexi Alexander, who's done this great little movie. She's finally getting her studio film, which you have to do in order to kind of make it into Hollywood and start getting to do the films that you want. You have to do, quote, your studio film, <laughs> which is where they basically just hand you a script and say, here's a check. Go do it. Come back later. <laughs> and she was actually turning it down. She did not want to do... Punisher Warzone and she makes no bones about it she says I don't want people to sit there and think when I'm sitting there with my best my little Oscar in the thing I wasn't thinking oh god please let them give me the next Punisher movie <laughs> you know she's very but then they brought up that you know they played the woman card look at what you're going to be able to do you'll be the first female comic book movie director da 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 you're going to break the glass ceiling there are going to be little girls all over america and the rest of the world looking up to you and she finally went god damn it you did it to me i'll take it might have had a little bit more effect if someone would finally goddamn make a wonder woman movie but that's a point for another time that that is <laughs> yes um yeah and it's not like women don't have a history of being directors. Alice Guy Blanchet, who is considered one of the first directors, she did over a thousand films. She did features. She did the first studio big budget film, a movie called The Life of Christ, which had 300 extras, which at that time, we're talking 1910s. Okay, so this is like silent film era? Yes. Okay. These films were unheard of at, at that magnitude. Mm -hmm. Most of the very early films were shorts and they were politically motivated stuff like Battleship Potemkin, you know, um, oh, propaganda film. Yeah, kind very, of stuff. very propaganda ish. Many of her films were lost and everything else. But what killed Alice Guy Blanchet was the fact that she got divorced. And when she got divorced, studios wouldn't touch her basically a 10-foot pole. She ended up working for the Hearst in their film services, Hearst's International Film Services, and when she did that, she never directed again. She actually ended up writing and lecturing about filmmaking, but she didn't actually ever get to direct, basically, after she was divorced. Do you know if any men kind of, well, for lack of a better term, got blacklisted as directors because they were divorced? Nope. As in, you don't know of any? I or? don't know of any, okay. but I'm willing to bet that if they are, there are very, very few. 
So probably if a man got divorced, they just kind of looked over it? Yeah. Okay. And another great thing about Alice Guy Blochet is the fact that she is the first and only... Okay, let me emphasize this again. First and only studio owner who is female. Right. So in today's market, anybody can open up their own production house slash studio. Anybody can do it. She owned a major studio with her company called Solax. I, I know that there are few women who are becoming executives for major studios. Um, I saw in an article, I think it's Sony and Universal have yep. a female executive, but that's different from the owner. Yes. Because even though the executive makes a lot of big decisions, the owner says, no, you're not spending my money on that. Is that kind of yeah. the difference between them? Exactly. I mean, we, we've got others. There's Nell Shipman, who she started out as an actress, and she ended up writing and then directing. Um, and she was one that she actually turned down a contract with MGM, which at the time could have basically made her a gazillionaire at the and time. This is like, this is all back in the day, yeah. early 1900s of studio contracts was how you did things. Yes. One of the things that, that people don't realize really up until the seventies, actors were essentially indentured servitude. That is, I honestly, it's the only way to put it. Those studios controlled everything about their lives and everything that got out. I mean, there's an infamous story about Rock Hudson, who, as we came to find out in the late 80s, was gay, had had suffered from AIDS and eventually passed away from it. But he would get done with these movies where he had to be, you know, the the leading man and everything else. And he'd get done with the movie, and he would just go on this alcohol and sex-fueled bender. And literally, the studios would have to go out and send somebody out to basically drag him out. Dry <laughs> him out for his next picture. Because, like, the, the conflict of having yes. to be all macho, and he just had to kind of go the other way because he was living a lie kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Nowadays, the stories that are on Raider Online people all of these things these stories you don't see the ownership of the studio mm -hmm. as controlling with their actors lindsay lohan in the 60s would never have been able to get away with <laughs> like half the shit that she did because that studio would have like i mean put the smack down on her they would have had somebody with her 24 7 and she would have had to put up with it they, they would have had more handlers for people like her and charlie yes. sheen and that sort of stuff exactly but women, like I said, they have this long history of being in films. They have this long history of working behind the camera. And originally, all of the editors, really up until the 50s, were women. Because... R really? Yes. Because editing was considered a woman's job. Because it was literally taking the film, cutting it, bonding it together. So they considered it like sewing. <laughs> Guys didn't want to do women's work. <laughs> For our listeners, there's a lot of air quotes in this. I mean, women have been involved in films since film has come around. But when you look at the statistics of modern day cinema, take example, the one of the biggest film festivals here in the United States is the Sundance Film Fest. 23.9% of all directors at Sundance are female, but only 4% of directors of the top 100 films 
from 2002 to 2012 are women. Right. So even like you think of those film festivals of being very, you know, progressive and liberal and, and, and kale drinking smoothie type hippie dippies, even that those kind of institutions either through basically people don't think they're welcome or through some kind of acceptance bias, mm -hmm. they aren't getting films made by women put through either yeah. made, uh, directed by or written by or those kind of right. head, you know, big head positions of, I know there's a big difference between like the big head positions, the executive position, positions in a film versus all the peons that are working, even though there's, there's still a lot of differences, I'm sure. Yeah. Females are more likely to direct a documentary than a narrative film. Okay. Females direct about 34% of all documentaries. So one third of your documentaries are done by women. 16, almost 17% of narrative films throughout the industry. Now this is including big budget and indie. So this is budgets going anywhere from $100. <laughs> I've literally worked a film that was 300 bucks. Okay. <laughs> We made it in a week. Gotcha. Okay. It was on Netflix. It's no longer on there anymore. And I'm not going to tell you the name because it's pretty fucking horrible. <laughs> so women in general are not behind the camera. Only 2% of cinematographers. So these are the people that are making the decisions of what exactly you're going to see. Every framing, every angle, every pan shot, every jib shot every flying shot that's the cinematographer except Two, for maybe like the lens flare that jj abrams puts in later on yes okay yeah let's not talk about lens flare <laughs> only two percent of women are in positions of director of cinematography two percent mm -hmm. women are more likely to be editors and producers in in modern day cinema Writers are at about 15%, executive producers, the ones who are handing out the money, 17%, mm -hmm. producers in general, 20%, editors are at 18%. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that it's weird to me that writers is so disparate still because you would think that there's plenty of, uh, basically, plenty of female writers out there. It's just their projects aren't being made. That seems to be the problem. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So here are some more really depressing statistics for you. 38% of all movies employed zero or only a single female. Like, I, I mean, there's a, there's a big difference between like Avengers, Adventures that has like 5,000 people worked on the film or something like that. But, but you're talking about like the, the kind of top 50 within kind of the organization of I'm a film? I'm talking in film in general. Across the board. Across the board. Okay. So no grips, no drivers, no even makeup people who is stereotypically female or wardrobe people, stereotypically yep. female, no females. Okay. 23% actually employed two women. That's but but better. 28% <laughs> employed three to five and 10% employed uh, six or more. That's weird. Yeah. So... 10% of movies in general employed six or more women. Just, just next time you go to your, your, you know, multiplex, mm -hmm. 
you know, you can sit there and go, look, oh, there's 20 screens. Likelihood is six of those films statistically had zero or only one woman working on them. So what you're saying is if you're watching... And this is behind the camera. I want to I want to clarify that because a lot of films actually do have more than one woman in front of the camera. Right. So what you're saying is that if you're seeing a movie with someone who you just don't like, you say, hey, let's play a drinking game. You take a drink for every male cast, male person behind the camera in the credits, and I'll take a drink for every female. Yep. And they get alcohol poisoning and... You get to leave. Exactly. And what's even sad is that these numbers, these sort of statistics are also reflected in front of the camera. Forbes 2013 list of the 10 highest paid actresses made a combined total of $181 million. Okay. So this is not like numbers of people. This is how much money people are making. Okay. So the top 10 women actresses paid. Is a hundred and eighty-one million total. So one through ten, this is how much they make. Mm-hmm. For actors, the top ten list taps out at four hundred and sixty-five million. It's a bit, so, of, bit of a difference. Almost triple. <laughs> Additionally, Angelina Jolie, who is the highest-paid female actress, she made thirty-three million dollars. Um, I believe she tied with Tom Cruise and Liam Neeson at thirty-three million for spots nine and ten. Robert Downey Jr. topped out that list at $75 million. So he made more than double what she made. Right. And Angelina Jolie is a pretty big box office draw. She is a huge draw. Like that Maleficent movie. It was was okay. It wasn't the greatest movie, but it was all about, this is Angelina Jolie with horns. Yes. Go watch her. Yeah. And, but also Angelina Jolie is also now... Moving behind the camera, she's got a new movie coming out, um, Unbroken. It should be out this Christmas. I believe it's coming out Christmas Day. What kind of film is that? It is about an Olympic runner who was taken prisoner by the Japanese during World War II. Okay. Um, She additionally was just actually, a couple of days ago, announced that she would be directing a movie about poaching in Africa for 2015. So she's starting to get some... That does sound right. like documentary type film, though. Um, Which you were saying is is a little is more balanced, but still, women are supposed to do documentaries, right? Kind of thing. We do the art films, <laughs> you know, and the chick flicks, and the chick flicks, like okay. Nora Ephron, who was probably one of the the most prolific female directors. I mean, she she did You've Got Mail, and mm-hmm. you know, those type of movies. Like our Penny Marshall, that yeah. sort of thing. Penny Marshall. <laughs> but the sad part is, is that these things are not changing. You right. would think with the the event of, of modern day and this, this whole, I'm going to say the deadly F word, you know, feminism here, mm-hmm. you would see that more reflected in the films because if, really a film is just a reflection of our society. Right. A lot of these films are... That's that's the only way that to put it, women are left out. They're left out of the writing process. They're left out of the directing process. They are left out. And what's scary is, is that something like, um, you see an increase in your sales, like percentage wise, like an eight to 10% increase in sales. If it's a woman written film and something like 12%, if it's a a female directed film. Hmm. 
So you're seeing increases for including those voices. Right. You know, whether or not it's it's a good movie, whether or not it's, quote, a traditional female movie, you're just seeing an overall across the board of the inclusion of the female voice is also dollar-wise a profitable thing to do. Okay, let me take a step back. Were you saying that it you see an increase of like 7 to 12% or whatever of gross ticket sales or of profit? Most films actually make their recovery of their cost to make in the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of an across-the-board sort of the increase. Okay, so... So they, they, you're saying that they sell more tickets. Right. Okay. There is a 10.6% increase in female characters, and there is a 12% increase in ticket sales if a female is directing, and it is an 8% increase if a female screenwriter is attached as okay. well. Because I know when you were given the presentation on Saturday, I asked, well, could it be possible that why some films that are run by females or have more females in the behind the scenes and in front of the camera, they quote unquote make more money thinking profit because they're paying the director and the well, lead less because of this pay disparity. That that may very well be a but part it may of be it. two separate issues. Right. Yeah. But there's plenty of women who want to go see films. It, right. Half I, of all ticket sales are bought by women but for some reason the just kind of old codger kind of owners and and executives in a lot of these companies think well movies about women and women's issues or just buy a woman about something people don't want to go see that that's their point of view it seems right and and i'm going to say this you know, I was asked if this would be considered social engineering on the part of the studios and everything else. And I'm going to say this. Studios are some of the most out-of-touch people whatsoever. Right. Um, there is a great short on Vimeo. It's called Boats. I highly recommend that everybody see it. And this is literally how movies are decided. So in this movie, they've got a poster, very Cars-like, and it's these boats... And they, they're all like, okay, our next movie is Boats. And the studio exec is like, I love it. And everything else. And the first real big line is, do you have a story? And the guy goes, no, but the poster tested well. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. They don't care about the story. All they care about is this bottom line. And the bottom line has been very, very profitable in this very traditional model for so many years that I really don't think that studio studio owners and studio executives see past that whole idea. It's it's the well why should we even consider this when we've got JJ Abrams and Ridley Scott and these mm. people making movies that we know are going to sell. You know, women are going to go see them with their boyfriends, their husbands, their brothers, whatever. But men are more likely to not go see something like Steel Magnolias or The Help mm -hmm. unless a woman is literally dragging them to it. It's a broad general generalization that I might not entirely agree with, but I, I, I get what you're saying. The, right. the the executives and the and the owners have this formula in their head that that's just the way it's always worked. Yes. And that leads to, well, you just you have a macho film with lots of explosions and that's just the formula 
story. Let's not worry about it later. But that's also how you end up with things like one summer you have three movies about volcanoes. Right. Or, or you know, three movies about asteroids colliding with the Earth or something like that. That they, they think, oh, that's going to sell. I'll make one, too. Right. Well, uh uh, Jim Wynorski, who is probably one of the most prolific filmmakers in history, um, his films he makes for an average of one or two million dollars. They always go overboard, but he does <laughs> most horrible movies ever. He did the movie Chopping Mall, The Witches of Brestwick. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know these films. They're bad. Not even B or C list films. They are D list films. He usually is bringing in people who are more known for their softcore porn acting than their actual acting abilities. He he's got a formula. It's got to have blood, boobs, and bombs. Right. And if you don't have those, people are not going to go and see the film. And that's sort of this pervasive, overlying architecture of how films are are. This is why Transformers has been greenlit for the past, what, eight years? Has been yeah. like, oh, we got another Transformers script. And I'm willing to bet the script is actually only eight pages <laughs> of so-and-so says this, so-and-so does that, da-da-da-da-da. Explosion, explosion, explosion. Somebody's, somebody's top pops open. Yeah. Explosion, explosion, explosion. Tra besides the fact that the Transformers movies essentially ruined my childhood by their schlockiness and just horribleness, they are a perfect example of kind of all the stuff you've been going into. You have, I mean, okay, they're robots and robots, but like, I don't, I can't remember. I, I don't remember them very well, but I, I think maybe one or two quote unquote female robots in all that time. And all the leads are the, I mean, I love John Turturro, but it's all the guys. It's the, the, the Shia LaBeouf and the Mark Wahlbergs and the whatever. And who do they have as their lead female? Basically tits McGee, you know, soaping a sports car or something. Yep. And, and, and I'm sure. So that's the representation of females in that film that young boys are going to go see. And they probably don't have a lot of females behind the scenes to go working on really? the film to say, to, to do the, Really? Yeah. Is this, and I'm yeah. sure that Tits McGee and wh whatever women are involved in front of the screen paid nowhere near, you know, even though people like Mark Wahlberg and, and, and Shia LaBeouf are a little bit, are just as much names as those people probably get paid a lot more than. Yeah. Well, okay. So in Transformers, there's only been one female Autobot. Okay. It was less name, than I thought. <laughs> name is Chromia. She lasted 38 seconds. So really more of a cameo than a character. <laughs> Just put it that. So the, there was uh, one of the films had basically two incredibly stereotypically quote, quote, black kind of street talking robots. And they lasted the whole damn film. The woman gets the, filled, killed like a red shirt. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I just, I can't express this enough of women have stories to tell. And women don't have necessarily the typical female story to tell. Yeah. Not every woman is going to be telling the story of how, you know, she she worked her way up and then she met the perfect man and got married and had 2.4 kids and lived a happy, happy life. Right. Even though, like, I've heard rave reviews about it, 
not every next Lena Dunham is going to be doing a show about women and dating and stuff. Exactly. You know, and I, I'm going to go back to, to Catherine Bigelow. This is a woman who made her bones in film. One of her first big film projects was actually this, oh, God, is this horrible vampire movie that I hate to say that I, I, I love. Was it Modern Vampires? No, it's actually called Near Dark, and she did it okay. for the HBO network. She basically stole the entire cast of Aliens. <laughs> it's got Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, and um, Game Over Man. Game Over uh, Man. Uh, Big Love. Bill Paxton, okay. thank you. So she did this movie. It was 1987. It's a great, wonderful movie about vampires. It's what you would consider. It's not Twilight. <laughs> These vampires are in no way shape romantic. In fact, the only quote, there's a romance between the guy that gets turned and one of the female vampires in the group. The only other quote romance in it is the old couple that's kind of like the parents of the group. You know, but you can tell that they really love each other. And then the other one is this kid who's been turned into a vampire for like 80 years. And he suddenly starts macking on a 12 year old, <laughs> you know, and you're just like, oh, my God. But she also did, like I said, she did K-19, she did Strange Days, Blue Steel, Point Break. So she has this habit, I don't know. She does more of the traditional, you know, manly guy, let's go out and, you know, chase down the serial killer, hunt Osama bin Laden, mm -hmm. you know, vampires that are bloody as hell, they fucking sparkle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I really hate that movie. <laughs> but these are the sort of things that the Catherine Biglows are even the rarity. Yeah. Lena Dunham, I mean, she got her start with doing Tiny Furniture. She's now doing Girl. But Lena Dunham, every time that she gets on stage, the next thing that you hear about her is, oh my God, did you see her in that dress? What was she wearing? What her was she hair? wearing? How fat she is. Yes. Frequently, Lena Dunham is referred to about her size rather than the quality of her work. Now, I think that her work is a little schlocky. I'm not a big fan of Lena Dunham's. But you've got people like Diablo Cody who wrote Juno, which is, yes, it's a more traditional female story because it's about a, a, a teenage girl giving away a baby. But she also did United States of Terror, Jennifer's Body. I just... She's got an amazing thing. You look at the numbers that say, okay, this is what women are doing. What's even worse is when you start looking at numbers like how many African-American women are making films. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are appalling. Like I said, the films reflect our shared experience. This is why films are popular. Everybody dreamt of either, you know, being the princess or being the the one that saves whomever, you mm -hmm. know, you, you went outside and you, you played cops and robbers, which eventually became, you know, law and order on the, on the <laughs> playground, or you played star Wars or you played these films that you were watching as a kid. But as a kid, like all the cop dramas were all just male cops, male captains. There were like, there were no, okay. Cagney and Lacey was only there because it was weird. Right. And so, but like I said, these are the reflection of our society mm -hmm. and women's voices are simply 
not part of that reflection as much as they should be. Mm -hmm. When you consider that, you know, what is it? 51% of the United States or the population of the world has boobs and a vagina. (laughs) And yet only 4% of movies. Now, what's scary is, is that China is actually getting more and more progressive about women filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Korea is getting more and more progressive about female filmmakers. China people, (laughs) China. Yes. Okay. They have a billion people, so it might be a little easier. But but even even so, like that, the, the, what is it? The numbers of female directors is what, like single digits, maybe 10% at the highest writers, Mm -hmm. about 20% producers, about 20%. Like those are shamefully small numbers. I mean, I, it wouldn't be so bad if. For whatever reason, like it was even like a 60-40 split one way on directors, but 60-40 the other way on writers or something. Yeah. Just some kind of average balance that worked out in the end of, you know, I mean, there are some people who will use the excuse of the behind the scenes stuff of, oh, well, um, a set builder or an electrician that's more usually a physical role and no, oh, that's gotta be a guy or something for some stupid reason. Cause there are plenty of really like weak guys compared to women. Right. But still, <clears throat> excuse me, but still there's, there should be plenty of, of roles like stunt people or drivers, like people just driving stuff around set or directors or cinematographers where there's no logistical reason why, you could even pretend not to have more right. female directors. And the percentages that you see reflected behind the camera are also reflected in front of the camera. For every female actress, there are 2.25 male actors on average in the in films. Mm-hmm. 30% of all speaking characters, 30% of all speaking characters, 30 are women. And and I'm sure I, I've also seen some other numbers of the 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 percentage of women who are not just speaking roles but are either the lead or like a co-lead like before the title names kind right. of stuff is is nowhere near a fifty fifty split on oh, average. No. It's like thirty seventy the same thing. Right. Where we actually outshine men in front of the camera is uh, apparently wearing. Sexually revealing clothing or being partially naked. Mm-hmm. So 28.8% of women in films in the top 500 films from 2007 to 2012 wore sexually revealing clothing. Men was 7%. Yeah. Women who got partially naked on camera, 26.2%. Men, 9.4%. And that's just... Partially naked. Partially naked. Where you could, I, it, I get the impression that you can get away with showing a fully naked woman or maybe at least the butt of a woman way more than you could get a fully naked man from the front or just the butt of a man. Right. So movies that generally show full frontal on males are almost always consistently in our rating. You can get by with a fully frontal female at PG-13. Really? Yes. Okay. And At least that's body positive for females, for young 
kids. <laughs> exactly. But it once again, it is more shocking for the NPAA who who basically reviews all of these films and gives its rating. Bunch of basically, conservative sticks in the mud. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they they've said that they would rather people see full frontal female than frontal male. Right. And it's the same problem of for some reason they judge violence and and all sorts of violence whether it's war violence or domestic violence or whatever less stringently than they would a swear word or heaven forfend a love scene right so exact example to to get an r rating if you have the word fuck in there twice so if somebody goes i don't give a flying fuckity fuck mm -hmm. you've just now made it an r rating so essentially that's a movie starring peter capaldi yes exactly <laughs> Do you know what film actually got the PG or encouraged the PG thirteen rating? Incur like there was a movie. It, it used to be just PG and R, yes. and now there's PG thirteen. What right. started that? Yes, um, in the mid eighties. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, okay. Because they had to actually back down some of the violence to get it from the R rating to the PG rating, because a PG rating movie. By virtue of <laughs> its content and the fact that parents can drop their kids off for a PG-13 rating or a PG-PG-13 rating. They can just drop their kids off, you know, and go grocery shop or do whatever. But in our rating, they actually have to take them to it. Therefore, you are more likely to see, you were more likely to profit from it, from a PG or PG-13 rating. So, it's okay to send your kids to go look at naked women, but, you know, they're not going to get to see a naked man. That's that's a says bad fuck. standard. Yeah. You know, and it is so, like, I mean, MPAA is, like, it's really weird because, like, you can show part of a buttock from the hip down. Like, you can show the top half and still be... PG, but if you right. show the whole or from the from the thigh up, it goes to PG third. Their their standards are so. There's side boob versus full, full boob, boob versus nipple areola. versus no nipple. It's like, yeah, it's it's. Watch the movie Scrooged. Yeah. Watch the movie Scrooged. Yeah. Where he goes, where she's all like, you can see the nipple, <laughs> and he's all like, no, it's just a little corner of the areola, you know. <laughs> There, there's mixed standards when it comes to female standards of beauty and what you can show of a female. It's okay to sexualize a female yep. on film versus a male. And and there's also... Yeah, because the percentage of teenage filming, females, teenage females depicted with some nudity, has increased 32% from 2007 to 2012. Mm -hmm. So these are... Now, let me straighten this out. These are... Over 18 actresses who are playing teenagers in movies such as, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the Scream movies, the, the whatever, you know, whatever teenage, mm -hmm. you know, high school film nudity for, quote, a high schooler, mm -hmm. it increases. It has been on the increase. Yeah. And in, in addition, I've also seen some material not just on... The nudity and whether or not someone's wearing a short skirt versus a guy wearing short shorts or something. There's also a vast disparity between 
basically women who are on screen. I don't know if it, it's basically on screen, maybe talking or not talking, who are basically really thin compared to men who are really thin. And also um, a lot of numbers about how often in just the text of the script, the woman is described because of her beauty or you know, yeah. she's referred to as beautiful as opposed to a male who no re one refers to how attractive they are. Yeah. And, and that kind of sucks for guys because guys should be known that they can be attractive too, but it's also, well, is, is that the only reason why this woman is on screen to be described as this idol of beauty to be obtained by the hero or the male romantic lead in the Hugh Grant film or whatever, that sort of stuff. Well, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of play in that. There is nine times out of 10, there's only one female in the movie. Right. So like, and that's not a statistic you're quoting. You're just no, saying in general, in general, yeah. there is, you know, there's the single female sort of the Smurfette and they actually call it the Smurfette principle. <laughs> which is this tendency to have one woman amongst a group of men. You can look at it in Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven is a great film to look at for actually looking at some of these tropes because Ocean's Eleven is kind of expands on what they call the five-man man, where you've got the leader and you've got the, the guy that develops the plan and you've got the hard worker and you've got these... You've got the nerd. Right. So you've got these people working together. And inevitably, you always have the Smurfette. The so one woman. The yeah. one woman, which in Ocean's 13, or Ocean's 11, she has one job in this film. Her only job, the only difference that she so makes... So this is Julia Roberts' character, right. who's not even part of the heist. Right, she's not even part of the heist, but she ends up becoming a tool that they use to advance the heist. Spoiler the, alert. The only thing that <laughs> she does is... She picks up a phone out of her pocket that has been basically planted on her and hands it to the casino owner. That's all she has to do. And she is also the prize for George Clooney. Right. She's, George Clooney is trying to get his ex-wife back. Okay. Yeah. I will spoil that for you. <laughs> now, mind you, I love Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Twelve, not so much. I really like Ocean's Thirteen, too. Mm -hmm. But this, this idea, it never, I don't think that it ever occurred to anybody to have said, why don't we make Julia Roberts the the geeky little computer guy mm -hmm. who's in there running the the the, the cyber stuff? You know, or why? Sandra Bullock? She just did the net. Let's put her in as the right. geek. Or, or Sandra, you know, maybe Sandra Bullock could have been you know George Clooney's character. Mm -hmm. I mean, she commands enough. She right. yeah. So An another example that I, I was thinking of when you're bringing up this issue is uh, the Expendables movies. Oh, yeah. The, 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 I just saw relatively recently Expendables 3, and I'm not going to give away the plot on that because there's so much plot in the Expendables movies. They're, it's all the standard kind of Sylvester Stallone and Dolph Lundgren, kind of those characters. And I think this is the first of the three films where they had a female as part of their crew. Yes. And it's one. It's one. So there's one, and she's... They don't really fully do it, but she's kind of supposed to be kind of a romantic-ish foil for Sylvester Stallone-ish, which is really 
fucking creepy because he's like 80 and she's 20. But she she is accomplished. She holds her own. She shoots people. She beats people up. Great. Yeah. She, she is, kicks some ass. She is not the, the other trope that I won't get into now because I'm ranting on all, enough. She is not the other usual trope of the female in an action film of she's not the fucking archer. That has pissing me off. But she is the one female in that film. And she's Asian, too. Yay, more minorities. Yeah, but but the, there's there's no reason you couldn't have more females. Like um, Red Sonia woman. Um, oh, uh, oh, oh, God. Yeah. Or, or uh, um, not Zoe Deschanel. The, the woman who played Uhura and Galaxia. Michelle Nichols? No, no, in, in the new version. And, oh, and she was Zoe Galaxia. Saldana. Yes. That, you know, she has some action kicks, uh, um, chops to her and all that kind of stuff. They could have more. The The solution Hollywood has come up with is a lower, lower, lower budget film. Like, I don't even know what it's called. It's like the, the, the female version of The Expendables. And nobody's talking about it at all because it's women. Right. Well, actually, what's funny is, is that there is actually talk of a female Expendables called Expendables. Right. That's, I think, what I was thinking of. That yeah. it, it is kind of... Happening. It is being yeah. talked about and everything else. But look at movies like Galaxy Quest. You've, you've got Which Sigourney Weaver. Which is a great film, but... But you have Sigourney Weaver who basically bitches mm -hmm. the entire time. And that is sending up like the old style science fictions where they just had the one woman and that it was just hailing frequencies open kind of yeah. role and, and that sucked. It is kind of sending that up at the same time of reinforcing it. Right. You have Avengers, which has Scarlett Johansson as mm -hmm. Black Widow. I, the Devil's Advocate, I would say, is they kind of – that's the source material they have to work with. Right. They they probably would not have been able to make Thor a female yet. Not yet. You know, I mean, that hadn't happened when they started making the Thor movies, but they – I mean, okay, maybe – Oh, could you could make Hawkeye a female? Why not? Right. There's no reason why an archer, though but I hate actually, that trope, couldn't be a female. If you look at the Thor movies, they're actually very progressive from a feminist standpoint. Um, you have uh, the the female scientist whose name Natalie is Portman. Natalie Portman's character, character, and then you have her assistant who is female. Mm -hmm. So you've got somebody with a a doctorate. In science, in physics, mm -hmm. yay! <laughs> having a discussion, especially in Thor 2, having this discussion about publishing papers and what they need to do mm -hmm. between two women. You know, they're not talking about Liam Hemsworth's rippling abs, which I have <laughs> to admit, very, very nice. Mm -hmm. But they actually have real human discussions. Because not all women are that interested in abs. Okay. So we like uh, them. We haven't talked about that this yet, but essentially uh, that passes. What is it called? The Bechdel test. Right, the Bechdel test. I love the Bechdel test. It's easier actually to explain the Bechdel test by what it isn't, okay, than what it is. First off, Bechdel test is not how pro-feminist a movie is. It's not a test of how many are women are in the film because you really only need two. And its standards have been modified and lowered to the most basic components to just kind of determine this 
how women are viewed baseline. It, so it doesn't have to be a rah, 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 bra burning kind of right. you know, women of the world are, unite kind of film. Because there are some yeah. really bad films mm -hmm. that pass the Bechdel test. I'm hoping most of our listeners know what the Bechdel test is, but why don't you... So the Bechdel yeah. test is you have two characters who are female who talk to each other about something other than a man. That seems to be a really low bar. Yeah, and you'd be surprised at how many movies actually fail it. Um, no, no, I wouldn't be. <laughs> so, it was developed by Alice, Alice, Alison Bechdel. She has since gone on to win the MacArthur Grant. Congratulations. Yeehaw. You have very famous movies that don't pass it. Um, some of them, Social Network. Aaron Sorkin, who is known for writing some of the best females in television. West Wing. West Wing. Yeah. C.J. Craig, who is this kick-ass, wonderful woman. Mm -hmm. So he did The Social Network. None of the women actually ever talked to each other. Let alone about something other than the men. They just don't talk to each other. Um, and he actually commented with Stephen Colbert about how women in the social network are considered prizes. He talked about it as in he was he proud reflected of them? On it. No, I uh, wouldn't uh, say that he was proud of it, but he commented on the lack of three-dimensional women mm -hmm. and about how in this particular movie, the men saw the women as prizes. These, right. these geeky guys that put together Facebook saw women as prizes. Mm -hmm. And you, so you have films like, say... The Avengers, which is by Joss Whedon, who's also very female positive, but because of the source material he works with, he only really has one female superhero and a couple of secondary female characters who are strong in their own right. But I don't remember the, what is it? The female second in command under Nick Fury. Uh, uh, yeah. Colby Smulders yeah, character. Who her I... character, I don't think ever talks to a Black Widow character. No, I don't. Or or so. any kind of right. interaction like that. And and he's pro-feminist. Right. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. You have uh -huh. women kind of trading quips. So you have the big battle scene between Molly Weasley and Bellatrix Strange, where they're trading quips. But they're not really talking to each other as much as they're smack talking. Devil's advocate, most of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is the three of them in a tent for half the book. But yes, exactly. I get your point. <laughs> okay. Avatar. So this is a movie about how we need to be nicer to each other and protect the environment. There are two female characters. They have a conversation, except that it ends with them talking about a man. <laughs> so it doesn't start out with them talking about a man, but it ends with them talking about a man. Right. And you can look at things like Star Wars. You can look at, which is, I'm about to piss some people off here, the original trilogy does not pass the prequels do the original trilogy had like three female characters in in the entire three films yeah leia um uh, and, the uh, one general mon, mon mothma yeah more of a politician than a general but i get your point who was, who was, was there a third one besides like the female Brew. dancers and Brew. there you go and I mean, she dies in the first 20 minutes. Well, so does Uncle Owen, so yeah. at least that's par gender parody, but... Right. 
Um, and, and they were both equally nude to to their bones. Yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Once again, we don't see women actually. Mm-hmm. There, there are plenty of women in it. They, they, they even tried. Speak. Yeah, they even tried to beef up the female characters more than that's in the books. I mean, the books they're barely there. Right. Another great movie, Run Lola Run, considered a, one of the most pro-feminist films. So, Run Lola Run is if you haven't seen it. It's these this woman who's got to rescue her boyfriend. He's been kidnapped, and I think she's got to get a hundred thousand dollars in twenty minutes to the kidnappers. Okay. She has conversations with her boyfriend, the security guard at the bank, and her father. Hmm. She never talks to her mother, or her sister, or her best friend. She talks to these three guys. And you could have made the person at the bank another woman. Exactly. It's not that hard. <laughs> Even even with like having secondary characters like that, right? You could just say, eh, "Let's flip that." Let's. There's no. There's. It's not like they're having a sex scene, which wouldn't be a problem in my book. But anyway, it's it's just there's no reason why the bank te- the bank director could not also be a woman, right? There's actually some really bad. I mean, really bad films that actually passed the Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a great movie, and by great, I, I mean that with air quotes, or scare quotes, actually. Um, 1976 is called Mano's Hands of Fate. So the plot of this film revolves primarily around this vacationing family that lose their way on a road trip. So they're driving through the Texas desert. They come across this polygamous cult, and they attempt, they basically get trapped, and they have to escape. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just... Oh, it's, it's so bad. And so you've got the master who's the head of this polygamous cult, who's like trying to control the women and all of Mm -hmm. that. Just, it's a bad fucking flick. Okay. And I don't mean that isn't bad is good. I mean, it's just horrible. And, and I'm, I'm guessing being kind of a, you know, slasher, scary type film the women aren't exactly presented as PhDs and judges. And, no. Yeah. But it passes. <laughs> okay. There, there, there are two women who talk about something who's besides a man. Do you, yeah. do you know what they talk about? No. Um, oh. I've seen it once. I really do try to block the movie. <laughs> it, it is that bad. So there's another movie called um, Bikini Car Wash Movie or Bikini Car Wash Company. Let's take a wild guess what this is about. Um, they go topless washing cars to increase business. So they, they have a discussion about how so, to... So, so really not a bikini wear. <laughs> right. Alien. Alien is great. Alien has a conversation with Sigourney Weaver and the other female in there talking about the xenomorph. Great little conversation. Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. It's about a guy and revenge on the guy. Yes. Does it pass? Yes. Because there is a conversation about basically killing people, mm-hmm. not necessarily men, just kind of killing people in general. I seem to remember during some of like the battles, like when, um, what's her face? The, the Uma Thurman. The, the is it was it Uma Thurman? Or I believe it oh, is Uma. Yeah. Uma. I'm I'm, I'm thinking. I was thinking that Daryl Hannah was the lead, but she's also in the films. And when they're having these big sword okay. fights, and I, she has several sword fights, Uma Thurman, with other female characters in the film. They have a banter. Yeah. And it's not all about Bill. Right. Boys Don't Cry. A great movie about a female 
who is undergoing gender transitioning. Mm -hmm. So there are conversations about what makes a woman a woman. Mm -hmm. What makes a man a man? Not, oh my God, he didn't talk to me today right. sort of stuff. And since you're saying something like Kill Bill and Thor, well, Thor 2 especially. Yeah. Those are stereotypically like guy films. They're right. action films, but they still, at least at this low bar level of the Bechdel test, show women as more than just talking about guys and being trophies in the yeah. most part. Okay. That's, that's good. In 2014, so far, nine big budget films have passed the test, which is, is really great to see. Bell, Divergent, Noah, Nonstop, The Other Woman, Palo Alto, Vampire Academy, which is a bad movie, Veronica Mars, and Winter's Tale. So these are all movies. And actually, Bell is a really interesting one because the women dominate almost the entire conversations in this film. They discuss politics, motherhood, friendship, race, and it is a really interesting and refreshing depiction of women in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Divergent is another one of those sort of Hunger Games. Post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic, yeah. you know. But has you, a, You're no longer a part of a family. You're part of a tribe. And, but has a strong female character who saves the day. Spoiler yes. alert. Shailene Woodley, who is the lead character in the Divergent, who is infamous for now saying, don't call me a feminist. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So. But there... There is some positives, but the the fact that there are so few positives sounds like that's part of the reason why there's still a problem. Yeah, it's it's glare the glaring in its absence kind of right. thing. Right, and then you when you have somebody like Emma Watson, who is considered one of the up and coming female actresses. This is a young lady who has done the. I mean, she's done. She did the entire Harry Potter series. She also did um, Bling Bling Club or the Bling Bling Ring, which is mm -hmm. a Sofia Coppola movie about kids who are stealing from celebrities. Um, she did Perks of Being a Wallflower. She's she's got her own film credit. Had a really good cameo in uh, the End of the World movie. Uh, oh, World, this is the end. This is the end. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, um, and she kicks ass because, as they say, Hermione kicked her ass. Yeah, <laughs> we got beat up by Hermione. Which was really great to see, but she just recently actually gave a speech at the UN, the hashtag he for she. Right. And where, a lot of really neat, basically Facebook memes have gone around of quotes of part of her right. speech about how it's about everybody being equal. Let's make sure men and fe men and women are equal. And that's the important thing. It's not yeah. one better than the other. There's lots men, of like gender fluidity and that's not a problem. Let's be okay with masculine women and feminine men that's not a problem right and, and she, yeah that was her biggest point is that if men don't have to think that they're always have to be the strong silent type then you'll realize that women don't always necessarily need to be rescued yeah she came out and she made the speech and the blogosphere the the internet's broke basically with the yeah. the the 4chan started up the big thing of Emma, you're next, and they were going to, you know, make sure that of, nude photos of her were going to be released. A lot of filth on Reddit, too. Right. Yeah. Especially after the the whole, like, Jennifer Lawrence and, and these other actresses 
who had their private accounts hacked. And then blamed for it. Right. And inevitably, the, the conversation gets back to, and in fact, Clay Aiken, who is running for Congress, basically said, if you get your private photos hacked, you are to blame because you took them. No, no. I don't blame Jennifer Lawrence for whatever pictures she took of herself, which I'm sure are very flattering, but I haven't seen them. I don't blame her. I blame mm. Anthony Weiner, who sent pictures out into the world. Yeah. And and it's of his own fault. He's a little bit of a victim of his own stupidity, but that's as far as I will go as get it, giving him the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. And people were gunning and looking and trying to find nude photos of Emma Watson. Well, it turns out that the the EmmaYourNext.com is now run by some viral marketing campaign that's trying to shut down 4chan and Reddit and all of these, you know, mm -hmm. like weird... They're not exactly on the pro-feminist side. They just want to get gather attention. Right. Essentially. But if you look at the backlash that has come out from Emma Watson saying, let's treat men and women equally. Right. That backlash has been tremendous. And just, it's not even like the stereotypical of, oh, you know, Saudi Arabia thinks that women shouldn't drive. It's not them really driving it. It's people in the Western world who uh, you would think by the 2010s should know better. Right. And and all the kind of vitriol and horrible reaction they're getting proves her point that yeah. she just made. That this is dangerous to society and probably bad economically besides just being bad socially to try to keep one half of the population down all the time. Exactly. Um and like you said, I mean, we can tie this back to the, the recent nude photo scandals of Jennifer Lawrence at all, where women are being blamed for doing something, mm -hmm. you know, oh, if you didn't take the pictures, then they wouldn't be out there. And so you're to blame for somebody stealing your own photos. Right. And in Emma Watson's speech, if you, if you read it or listen to it, at no point does she go you know, as I put it, full-on third-wave feminism. She never says men are evil, men are the scourge of the earth, and all this. She is talking about men and women and equality. Yeah. Let's treat men the same way we treat women. Let's treat women the same way we treat men. And for some reason that I, is just alien to me, some people are just threatened by that idea. Yeah. Of, of equality. And, and bringing this back to films... There's a pretty neat study that seems to have come out fairly recently. It's it's more of a survey um, than a full-on kind of scientific kind of... But they took a sampling of a lot of films internationally and in the United States. And it was done by the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. And it's called Gender Bias Without Borders. It's a really interesting read and we'll post it to the blog page announcing this episode. That in addition to all the things you brought up earlier, Donna of basically nudity disparity and and all that kind of stuff there's very interesting sections towards the end of this report about disparity in just how women are portrayed in what jobs they have in that film one whether or not they have a job which there's kind of i, th I think it's like a 2080 split or some horrible thing like that even though women aren't 50 50 in the job workforce especially internationally it's it's nowhere near reality and also in what jobs people do have are, are women portrayed as 
politicians or lawyers or directors or any sort of executive at all, the difference between real life, how many women are in those kind of executive positions and how they're being portrayed in films or even uh, STEM careers, science, technology, um, uh, education, math or engineering and math. Um, if we portray women in these films more balanced in how they're treated sexually, more balanced in how often you see a female who talks on screen, yeah. more often how you balance what jobs people have. I, I have seen in my lifetime things like in, you know, um, cop shows and stuff like that, you start to get more female judges. And that's great because that's a p position of authority. And it's something easy because there are plenty of female judges and they're smart and they're in a position of power. And that's great for someone to see the more equality in these kind of executive positions that are not threatening. It's just, you know, you female doctors, female journalists, f female clergy, even, you know, that kind of thing will basically show to the next generation that just like how our generation saw, Hey, gay people, there's no big deal. They're just people. Right. Once we started seeing more in media with like the, the Ellen's and the wills and graces and the, are you being served kind of stuff? It's like it, it, all it takes is to show people as people, men and women working together and to kill Godzilla or something. And, and things can change in the long run. Unfortunately, I'm guessing a lot of these problems with the movie studios has to do with, like I said, these kind of 80 year old fuddy duddies who are controlling the purse strings and say, we're not making women films. We're just making blow them up booby films. Right. Well, I, I can't give you a, a really great example of this. So Law and Order, which is one of the longest running television shows in history. It was on like for like 20 years, 20 years, 20 yeah. years. So in the fourth season, they went from basically an all-male cast. <laughs> they added in a female ADA, and they added in the female lieutenant. Mm -hmm. And they were being told by studio execs that they'd killed the show by adding... By adding in. a female. Right. Yeah. By adding actually two females. Oh, my God. Nobody's going to watch <laughs> yeah. it. Because nobody's going to believe that a black woman can be a police lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And that you can have strong, competent women ADAs. Yeah. Robert Zemeckis, who directed the Back to the Future films, is also quoted as saying that when he ended the original Back to the Future, mm -hmm. so it ends with everybody's home, Brown comes back in his flying DeLorean now with the, 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 the nucometer or whatever, <laughs> where he can just put the garbage Mr. in. Mr. Fusion. Mr. Fusion, thank you. And it takes off for... The future, so they, they went back to the past and now they're going to the future because Marty's kids and Marty's family has fucked up the future. Spoiler alert. He said they ran into the problem of including the girl that becomes the mother and the wife in that he goes, it would have been easier to do back to the future too had we not ended it with the two of them flying off to the future. That if they just had... Doc Brown and Marty, it would have been easier to write around. Mm -hmm. And n by not including the wife and the mother when they go to the future. Doesn't... Uh, okay, I may be wrong on this. Isn't there something about the fact that 
didn't the female love interest character like they recast the actress on that? Yes. He's, but, so he's not talking about the fact that they had to change actresses and that no. made it confusing. It was that the story they was they the story had, was a bad story because it would have involved it involved a female to write around. Yes. So by the way that they ended it with the girl flying off with them, they had to obviously include her in Back to the Future too. You know, they did the, the where she goes slightly crazy because she's you know really confused and all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. In Back to the Future 2, so they could basically write her off so that Marty could tell his story. <laughs> so just think about that. Just consider yeah. it's, that. It's a tiny example of all this other stuff that we're getting into, just showing how pervasive. And, and, and you were talking earlier about how you got a question over the weekend of, do you think this is social engineering? But I agree with you that it's just this kind of subconscious kind of combination of either well this is just the way we've always done it but also just the the i know this is a word that gets thrown all around a lot but it makes a lot of sense in this context of the privilege of a guy who thinks well let's just have the story about guys because i'm writing about i what i know i'm directing what i know and because guys have always been in power in movies that just keeps going right. and it's it's just it's not inbred is the wrong word, but it's intrinsic in the industry just because of history, but also it's, it's second nature to guys to just keep doing guy movies and hiring other guys because they just don't think about it. Right. I think that it's, it's a slow change that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that it will happen. You know, you will start to see more of a gender balance and, and everything else. Do you think it's kind of like the academia problem where we just have to wait for the older generation to start dying off? Uh, you know, I don't know about that because it really it is this. As long as these films that are still making money. Okay, yeah. That formula is not going to change. So it's literally the people who are going to see the films mm-hmm. are going to be the one that institutes the change. But at the same time, as long as you still have schlock like Transformers mm-hmm. coming out, you're not going to see that change because these movies are hugely popular. And as long as these movies are hugely popular and blowing away the box office scores, I mean, box office scores now, back in the 20s, 30s, 50s, and 60s, if a movie didn't do well or a TV show didn't do well, it was okay. MASH sucked its first season. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have been picked up for a second season. But somebody believed in it and therefore it got... Kept you going. Know, yeah. And then it finally got into its groove. And it, it was allowed to, to, to grow and progress the way that it needed to, to grow. And on the other hand, you have Firefly, which was awesome episode one, right. and died. Right. Well, they at least let them get, you know, what is it, 17 episodes before they killed it. These things are not going to change Mm -hmm. unless movie viewers change it. So kind of like how I'm thinking of how in the 70s and 80s or whatever, all horror films, the Friday the 13th, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street's, were all essentially like morality plays mm-hmm. of the person who cheated, killed, the teenage sex people got killed, and yeah, you know, all that kind of the morality plays or whatever. 
when that stopped making money, when when people stopped going to those films because they were so rote and it was the same formula all the time, it was only then that they started changing up how they were doing the horror films and either spoofed it in a fun way like the Scream movies or just said, screw it, we're going to go full on like horror bloody with like the Saw series or whatever that said, we're not going to follow that morality tale. So because it stopped making well, money to be a morality play in, in the traditional like old kind of Halloween right. way. But I'm going to say they, that Saw they is said, still a morality play. Yeah, I, I, I would take your point. I've never seen the movies, but I understand the general plot. But so because of that old formula wasn't working anymore, wasn't making money anymore, studios started taking risks on other types of horror films. Right. So we need to stop giving our money to horrible non-Bechdel testing, like, you know, woman is the trophy Smurfette movies. Yep. And, and give our money and give our blog positiveness to good movies that right. are portray but, women you well. You know, and the, the thing of it is, is that there are really great movies that don't pass the Bechdel test. I talked about this in my, my speech. Chef, it's a great little movie. John Favreau, father and son, but you have Scarlett Johansson in it and you've got Sofia Vergara. Mm-hmm. Okay. They never have a conversation, but these are very two strong, capable women one of them is basically the assistant manager of a restaurant. The other one is his ex-wife that he still gets along with, who mm-hmm. kind of pushes him to doing what he needs to do, which she, is open up this food truck. The woman is not portrayed as a shrew. You've got right. a, She's not- a, a co-manager in the other position. And, and the film is about, the way you describe it, is a father-son movie. Right. So a father-son movie doesn't necessarily have to be about the women, but you have to have more of a distribution of right. other films that are about women and portray women. Right. And like I said, it's this great movie. Women are not shrews in it. Women are encouraging and, dare I say, nurturing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're competent. Sofia Vergara is a businesswoman in and of herself. And she's all like, basically like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Sort of thing. <laughs> you know, she's all like, she's like, you know how to do this. And so it's movies like that that need to be encouraged. Maybe they don't pass the Bechdel mm-hmm. test, but it's still the portrayal of women in a positive light. Because five years ago, had this movie been made, somebody would have been really, really, Sofia Vergara would have been with her boobs up to her neck, <laughs> bitching at him like, no, you cannot have your son this weekend, <laughs> sort of thing. But go see it. And if you see Chef, mm-hmm. um, make sure you eat beforehand or have plans to eat right after. Or go to like an Alamo draft house where you can eat during or yes, something. Yes, <laughs> because it is the most hungry movie ever. <laughs> That's all I got to say. So I guess for this week, we can kind of wrap it up because we're, yeah. we're starting to get close on time. I, I, we're not going to solve this in an hour and a half podcast. No, we're not. But, you know, it's one of those things that I really wish people would would look at. And look at the characters and look at the people who are making their films. Mm-hmm. Because once again, and I've, I've said this how many times tonight, films are reflective of our society. And film is an art form that is, it is truly a labor of love, but it is also this collaborative project. You cannot make a film by yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can, but it's going to take you a really long time. And there's not going to be a lot of panning shots because you just got to film a camera on a tripod pointing at yourself. Exactly. So <laughs> start looking at films. Look at the people who made them. Look at how women are portrayed. Look at how even the women talk to each other. Mm-hmm. If they talk to each other. 
and how the women treat the men and the men treat the, the women, women, both of those kind of that interaction can show better people on average on a more positive light. There's always going to be villains and there's always going to be good guys, but they don't have to all be one or the other. You know, it doesn't, doesn't always have to be the, the nagging Marge Simpson or the stupid Homer Simpson. We can get right. beyond that. Because that is also a reflection that I think, you know, if we look at how men are portrayed in these films, you know, you've got the bitchy woman and you've got the clueless man. Yeah. I love men. Most, I mean, I am the least girly girl out there. Uh, if I'm on a set, I'm not in dress and heels. I'm in tennis shoes and jeans and I'm rolling up my sleeves to get shit done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Some of the, my most favorite people in the world, in fact, the vast majority of my most favorite people, men in the are men. They're men. Mm -hmm. I hate when men are treated as another child in a movie or a right. television show. Let's let's stop that. Let's portray men as intelligent, as caring, as nurturing, as loving, not. You know, some stupid child that the the wife has to take care of as well, or you know, scared serial of being rapey. a father or serial rapey, or yeah, yeah. You know, let's talk about men in a positive light, just as we want women to be talked about as well. Yeah. So, bringing it back around to this is a skeptical podcast. Most of what we've been doing the last hour is just looking at the raw numbers of. There's a big numbers disparity. It doesn't always have to be fifty fifty, but. Let's look at the numbers and show why this is a problem and think skeptically about how we're portraying people and how that affects the broader culture of let's portray women scientists, let's portray nurturing men, right. all that kind of stuff. That can be better for society and shows how skepticism can work with kind of sociology and psychology to say we can make things a little better. Yeah. And and this isn't really even just a – this isn't really a religion-driven issue specifically i mean i'm sure there are like old kind of cultural you know men are in charge and that kind of stuff that it came from a lot of religions and just culture in general but we can apply these lessons that we know from skepticism and secularism to something like movie making yeah i completely agree yeah and so listeners go out and Google any film Donna has made, especially the one she doesn't want you to see on Netflix. It is actually <laughs> not on my IMDb. <laughs> I actually, because it's bad. <laughs> oh, did you ever, did you, were you credited as yourself in the credits or did you no, use a, no, I'm not. You, you used a pseudonym? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> because at the time I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And then when it popped up on Netflix, I was all like, shit <laughs> someone bought that piece of crap yes exactly that was pretty much my like wow okay yeah. so what did we learn tonight we learned that women are disproportionately working in front of and behind the camera we're paid less showed more boobage yeah we show more boobs um although you know there are some actors with a really great set of moods that have no problems flaunting them but that's a whole <laughs> side note yep these things are not going to change without men and women working together. So let's let's make films more reflective of the world we want to be in rather than the world that we used to live in. Mm -hmm. And that's all I got. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the listeners at this point would like us to both step off of our soapboxes 
And uh, we'll get back to talking about newsy stuff next week, I guess. And hopefully Gary should be here. So (laughs) who knows if Louisiana Island will let him go. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of afraid. You know, there might be a crocodile chasing him or something. (laughs) Or he'll be down at Bon Tomps and he'll have been turned into a vampire or something. That would be cool. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to say it first. I'm going to say good night. Good night. I'm going to say it second. Good night. And Herpo says it third. The Skeptic Wire podcast theme music is by Oscar Lawn with guest mandolin by Greg Perrine. If you've enjoyed listening to The Skeptic Wire, leave a review on iTunes or leave us a voice message via the PodPosted app for iPhone. Friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at The Skeptic Wire. Follow our blog at skepticwire.blogspot.com or send us an email, skepticwire at gmail.com. You've been listening to The Skeptic Wire. 